0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com, where our podcasts are housed as well, uh, as on Spotify, iTunes, and the rest also uh, on uh, Twitter, at Dan Prof Show, at Dan Proft. And uh, Nancy Pelosi yesterday uh, asked to uh, recommit to House Democrat Caucus support for whoever the nominee is. You know, basically the subtext, even if it's Bernie.
2: The presidential is its own race. And I don't uh, – contrary to what you may be hearing or writing, uh, we are not getting uh, – we are all unified, whoever the nominee is of our party – we will wholeheartedly support. Uh, our gospel is one of unity, unity, unity.
1: This is, continues to be the problem for the establishment types who are hoping to derail the Bolshevik Bernie. He's just too darn popular within Democrat primary voters. And the, there will be, generally speaking, a rallying around him if he piles up a plurality of the delegates, which he may be all but assured of doing after Super Tuesday next week. And uh, the uh, arguments from uh, Mayor Bloomberg, who perhaps is the only one who could stop Bernie from doing that at this juncture, are getting a little desperate sounding. Listen to Bloomberg trying to politicize coronavirus. That's high risk.
0: The deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. The markets are plunging for a second straight day. Health experts warn the U.S. is underprepared. Managing a crisis is what Mike Bloomberg does. In the aftermath of 9/11, he steadied and rebuilt America's largest city. Oversaw emergency response to natural disasters. Upgraded hospital preparedness to manage health crises. And is funding cutting-edge research to contain epidemics. Tested, ready. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message.
1: I know that presents as a contrast ad, but it's it smacks, I think, to the regular person of politicizing something that is beyond the control of any politician, much as nine eleven was beyond the control of the local and state officials in New York. For more on this topic, where the race stands, we're pleased to be joined again by his eminence, VDH Victor Davis Hanson, the Martinelli Anders, uh, Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, author most recently of The Case for Trump. VDH, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank
3: you for having me.
1: So in uh, your uh, most recent piece that I read at uh, Real Clear Politics, uh, you uh, give a quick assessment of Trump's chances as we uh, stand here on the cusp of March, and uh, you look at sort of five indicators that suggest he is uh, well-positioned and increasingly well-positioned. Give us a rundown.
3: Well, incumbents since 1900. That have run for re election as president, 14 of 19 have won. And the ones that haven't, like Jimmy Carter or Gerald Ford or George H.W. Bush, didn't poll 50%. Trump's getting pretty close to that. He's higher than he was on Inauguration Day. Usually, a, a, a recession or a depression kills a re election bid, as in the case of Bush or Carter, or, or it undermines the presidency in the second term, like. Uh, Younger Bush, for for all the talk about the coronavirus, I think it will pass and we won't be in a recession. That's what most people think. On popular wars such as Vietnam or Iraq, the former destroyed the LBJ decision whether or not to run for the election. And George Bush's second term was plagued by poor ratings from Iraq. I don't see Trump of all Republicans. He's probably the least likely to want to insert ground troops in an optional war in the Middle East, for example. Then scandal, well, we're, we've gone from the voting machines of the Emoluments Act to the 25th Amendment to Stormy to Michael Cohen to Mueller to impeachment 1.0, 2.0, and now we're into coronavirus, and the bubonic plague, and none of these seem to have derailed them. And then finally, and most importantly, it's not a popularity contest. The president runs for re-election against someone. Had, the Republicans had a better candidate than John McCain or Mitt Romney. I think they were both anemic candidates with poor campaigns. He probably would have had a lot tougher time. Bill Clinton was a good candidate, so was Barack Obama. Uh, Bernie Sanders is not. He's, uh, I just don't think the country, for all of the unhappiness of the younger generation, is not ready to vote for a socialist.
1: Uh, much has and been. At the
3: end, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, but the efforts in the Democratic Party to derail. Bernie only would marginally improve their chances because it would create a virtual civil war that would make the never Trumpers look irrelevant in comparison. Uh, Speaking They are irrelevant.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, speaking of Sanders, though, um, you know, this week has been dominated by his, uh, you know, favorable things that he has said past and present about dictators like Castro, Ortega, the Soviets, uh, and a lot of talk about socialism. Uh, including at the debates where, you know, raise your hand if you have a concern about a socialist being at the top of your party's ticket. And only Amy Klobuchar did, which is also instructive. Uh, But Joe Sternberg uh, makes an interesting point in uh, Wall Street Journal. He argues that much like uh, Corbyn versus Boris Johnson in the U.K. in December, the vote wasn't really about uh, ultimately uh, the fundamental thing wasn't Brexit or socialism. It was uh, a referendum on Mr. Corbyn's Britishness. Does he have enough of it? And he writes, Sternberg does, that uh, Bernie Sanders faces the same problem. No one who shares middle middle America's core values of freedom, democracy, and entrepreneurship would choose to honeymoon in the Soviet Union. No one who values American achievements in science, the arts, or education would he praise on Cuba's schools. So maybe it's sort of a different way to come to the same conclusion, but I, I thought it was an interesting uh, pivot, a slight pivot on it to talk about he's just so out of step with American values, and it's not just about uh, competing economic systems.
3: I think that's true. I mean, ostensibly in 72, there would have been no more patriotic candidate than George McGovern, who was, was a decorated B-24 bomber pilot in World War II, but he said and did things and advocated things that made people question to what degree he was committed to putting America's interests first. And the same thing plagues Sanders. But what's different than Corbyn and Sanders, and I would even argue it's worse for Sanders, is that he's facing somebody who has a billion dollars to spend in negative research at Sanders. So Trump is basically being given a gift of a billion dollars. And for the next six weeks, all we're going to see are stories coming out about Sanders. It's not just going to be limited to his dubious commitment to American strategic interests, but more about his strange youth. I mean, all the things he wrote about sex and nudity and pornography and all of that stuff is going to come out. And then his job history. And I think Bloomberg is trying to paint him as a flower child of the 50s, of the 60s, who never really grew up. And then once he did finally get a government job, it was a sinecure. And then we're going to learn that his wife, and he sort of used the government and as grifters got her jobs and consulting fees. And then by influence, Pellene had her head of a small college, which she summarily bankrupt and walked away with a severance package. So this isn't me saying this. this is me just reading these Bloomberg seated stories in the media and the advertising.
1: Yeah, I, I, and I wanted to, to go back to a problem that these candidates are uh, trying to uh jockey for position as the alternative to Bernie have, and it seems to me uh, it goes back to that debate stage and that question about anybody have a problem with socialism and Klobuchar sort of sheepishly raised her hand. The reality is, and Bernie sort of made this point late in the debate in, in Charleston, South Carolina, when uh, he was challenged by Buttigieg, which is, wait a second, what's so radical about my positions? Another way he could have said it is, wait a second, where do you really disagree with me? Everybody on this stage is starting from my premises. So, yeah, you may want to go a little bit slower on Medicare for all government takeover of health care. He wouldn't characterize it that way, but I would. Um, you may want to go a little bit slower on GND. But we're all trying to get to the same destination. It's just a question of pace. So how am I so radical? It seems to me they have that problem. There's not a competing vision that starts from a differing premise than Bernie's.
3: Yeah, that's why I mentioned Michael Bloomberg, because the party establishment saw that. And they said to themselves, this array of candidates is either politically or ideologically incapable of criticizing someone who they more or less agree with, or they don't have the intelligence or they're afraid to do it effectively, or they're afraid that the primary uh, electorate constituency wouldn't support it if they did. So even Joe Biden is renouncing prior positions. Kamala Harris was renouncing her prior. They all tried to disown themselves and move over to Bernie, and that made them inept and incapable of criticizing. Then Bloomberg comes in with all this money, and he sees a big vacuum in the middle to the middle right of the Democratic Party, and he thinks it still exists. And so he's using this money, and, and it's been pretty effective. I don't think it's going to get him the nomination, but my point was it's going to damage him. A, it's going to damage Sanders in a way that the other candidates are incapable of uh,
1: When we come back I want to get to your reaction to this uh, piece uh, by Tom Friedman, the New York Times whose uh, wife's foundation or a museum I believe is funded by Bloomberg but I digress uh, his uh, idea of a team of rivals approach that's how you beat Trump more with VDH Hoover Institution author of the book The Case for Trump right after this Where's that dead
0: Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of, among other books, The Case for Trump, most recently. Victor Davis Hanson, this piece by Tom Friedman. Thankfully, this did not include a Flintstones metaphor, which is normally his stock and trade. But it's you get one of these every cycle from somebody who's never been involved in a, a any campaign, really, because it's just so tone deaf. He, his big idea is that Sanders is going to be the nominee. So here's what Sanders needs to do. Gather together all the candidates, past and present, and come up with a slot for everybody. Amy Klobuchar will be VP and... Cory Booker will be uh, the HUD secretary and Bloomberg will be Treasury and will bring in like AOC to be U.N. ambassador. Seriously, that's what he suggests to be bipartisan. Mitt Romney as my con- commerce secretary and so on and so forth. So if you can't beat them one on one, then beat them with a team.
3: Now, there's two problems with that. One it's Tom Friedman wrote it, and Tom Friedman, remember, was the one who told us he prays that America could be China just for one day. <laughs> and then that one yeah. magical day that it would have autocratic power to issue these eminent domain edicts to wipe out neighborhoods so high-speed rail could make its way. I'm speaking right now 10 miles from the failed high-speed rail project in California and then he talked about solar panels and all of these green projects that China could rush over and into over the objections of people so he's not really a democratic constitutionalist he believes in autocratic power or dictatorial power which is ironic because that's what he criticizes Trump for if it's in service for a green or a progressive agenda and then the team of rivals they only there's no proven competence in any of them and what he's saying is i went through the spectrum of all of the democratic and never trump personalities on the political stage these days and the ones that are the most vehemently anti-trump i wanna i want together that's all they have in common you heard that cacophony on the debate stage this week and the idea that those people would be able to get along or was they able to offer unique ideas remember joe biden for example was the uh jobs auditor during the um, recovery period stimulus of obama he was supposed to make sure that. Things like Salimba were not crooked. And then when you look at Pete Buttigieg, he's, I'm speaking 15 miles from Fresno. He was the mayor of a city one tenth the size of Fresno. He had a disastrous record. So there's nobody on that stage that really has a record of anything except Mike Bloomberg. And he he was very successful in business and he did okay as mayor. But the only common denominator is Friedman is thinking everybody says we're split apart. We are split apart. Sanders is going to get the nomination. Trump's going to win. I can't say that we've got to derail Sanders because there's too many people and I like his green deal. So therefore, why don't we just get all these people together? And we know from the never Trump resistance in 2016, that always happens. Some candidate or some pundit says, well, if you total up all the separate votes against Trump and you get them all together, then you can stop him. Well, nobody wants to be the person to ring the the bell around the cat's neck. So that never happens. So treatment is upset because Biden and Kobachar and Buttigieg, they don't all drop out and say this person, Bloomberg, or somebody should be the candidate. And that's not going to happen. They're going to split the moderate vote. Sanders is going to get nominated. And then they comes up with plan two, and that is maybe aggregate them. But they're not able to be aggregated. They don't like each other. They're not very successful. If you just said to yourself, let's just be dispassionate. Joe Biden is enfeebled, and he's not really able to handle the stress of of a modern campaign at the age that he is. And Kobachor is a minor functionary of the Senate, and Budajig is an unknown mayor of a, of a very small city with a dubious record, and then you just go down the line. I mean, Tom Steyer, he's just a guy who made a fortune in coal production in Indonesia, and fossil fuel speculation felt bad about it, spent a bunch of money, he's got no political record to speak of, doesn't come across very successfully. I, I just don't see anybody... In that that array of candidates. And then you add to the idea that this is a party that said disproportionate this, this representation and proportionate diversity. And if, even if you do not have enough blacks or Hispanics or women, then you have to appoint people, even an elected poll or a venue. And so we're thinking, where are the blacks? Where are the browns? Where are people who are not white? You've said that you had to have them no matter what uh, the process. And it's an all-white upper middle class, wealthy group of people, and they're all going to get together and then tell the nation that you people have white privilege, it doesn't make any sense. And I think that's why people are bewildered by the Democrats right now. They just don't know what they're doing. They don't know who they are. And uh, Bernie Sanders is the only person on that stage who knows who he is. And he's an unrepentant, unapologetic, um, socialism. That's a euphemism for
1: him. Well, and i tell you what, I, I think you hit upon something and this needs to be part of the distillation of capitalism versus socialism and the values discussion in a general election context. Those seven candidates in Charleston competing with one another to demagogue racism in America, how racist is America? How racist is everybody? What I'm going to do against white people to, uh, uh, to try to extract the uh, racism that they all believe, like the 1619 project is embedded in our country's DNA, and, and it goes to this piece that you wrote in NationalReview.com about gray matter, gray matter deficient Americans. It, it, Bloomberg has you know been insulting in the past about all sorts of groups, which he's been apologizing for for the last two weeks. But it's not just him. I mean, it's Joe Biden a few weeks back who said to you know to coal miners in West Virginia, you know, if you can go. Uh, uh, a mile down in a mine, then you can learn how to code. It's this attitude that all of them have in differing ways, expressed in different ways, that, uh, you know, they're just not that concerned about your life or your livelihood. You're going to have to fold into the grand vision they have rather than expect that they're going to serve your interests on your own terms.
3: Yeah, I think so. I think they're representing the party of what we saw during the Obama um, the Obama campaign to get enacted Obamacare, and that's the life of Julia and Pajama Boy. Those were the bookends, yes. and they were single de- government dependent, snarky type of creations. And we were all supposed to think that this is the future of the country. As some person with a lot of student debt who lives in an urban environment, has a degree, is pretty arrogant and ignorant at the same time, and most of America is not just not that. Person, I think the $64,000 question is the Democrats say this about racism, even though it, co- it boomerangs back on them because they're all white and upper class because they're getting disturbing signals that Donald Trump could win about 40% of the Latino vote, maybe as much as 15 to 20% of the African American vote.
4: Right, And
3: that makes it impossible for them to win cities um, like Milwaukee or Detroit our Grand Rapids at the level they need to win. Our Philadelphia and Pittsburgh to balance their landslide losses in the rural parts of those swing states. And, and, and it, that's how Obama won them, and that's how Hillary lost them. And she's either, he's going to do worse in those states, Sanders, than than Clinton did.
1: And it, and it seems to me maybe I'm being too optimistic, but there's a, a combination of things afoot with respect to uh, the African American vote, the Latino vote too, which is. One, there's a, a, a very public explicit overture being made by Trump to those communities, which is good. You're actually asking them to consider, which is what you have to do. And number two, I th- maybe at least among some portions of those communities, they're tiring of watching seven uh, upper income socialists, white socialists on stage, telling them that they're, they can do nothing in this country without those people on stage, that they have no yeah, agency.
3: I, I... Yeah, I'm speaking from my hometown here, about 90% Hispanic, about 40% illegal aliens. And I know most of the people that I went to high school that are still here. I'm, I'm 66, and I talked to a guy yesterday, and he said it's the He is
1: VDH Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Illy Anderson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, and author of The Case for Trump. VDH thanks as always. You're listening to
0: The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, this is a story coming out of uh, CPAC this week, Conservative Political Action Committee in D.C. that, uh, boy, they will drive home the dangers of the government takeover of health care in this country that is supported by, in one form or another, every one of the Democrat socialist candidates for president. A, A doctor named David Schneider, an orthopedic surgeon from Colorado, presented at CPAC, explained how with socialized medicine, wait times for care are disastrous. In Canada, the wait time to see a specialist is two years and then another two years to get the procedure, saying people in this country would go crazy if you were told you had to wait four months how about four years? Uh, yeah, no kidding. Then he uh, provided this anecdote. He argued that Princess Diana would be alive today if not for Britain's government-run health care. Princess Diana was in the car accident in France. They actually don't have any trauma specialists in France. Well, so not just in Britain, but also France, too. Same deal. He went on for the first hour after that accident in France. She was still in the tunnel. And after an hour, they took her to a nearby hospital and she was alive for another three hours and they couldn't control the bleeding from her pulmonary artery. There were no trauma trained people there in socialized France. I really believe knowing what I know about her care and comparing it, say, to the care that Congressman Scalise had after he was shot, Princess Diana would have lived had that accident happened in America. I mean, you know, it's an imponderable uh, who knows, but you're talking to an expert in the space. And um, he's certainly right about wait times, and he's certainly right about the level of expertise and trauma care. We know uh, from this debate for the better part of the last three decades how technologically advanced that America is with private health care providers and private insurance providers as compared to the Canada's and the Britons and the France's. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, who is also the president-elect of the Young America's Foundation, and he is at CPAC. Governor Walker, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, so that uh, that conversation, I bet that's a big topic of discussion, Medicare for All versus what uh, Republicans would propose uh, come the general election between uh, Trump and Bernie or whoever they nominate.
5: Well, exactly right. And I think it's increasingly looking like uh, Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee. I think Biden gets a little bit of reprieve, probably winning South Carolina, a little bit of shake up on super Tuesday with Bloomberg's money. But in the end, I think it's, it's Bernie Sanders, which one, we shouldn't write him off because uh, while his ideas are radical, um, he does have a certain sense of uh, he's authentic. You know, one thing he he carries in common with the president of the United States is they both are kind of the anti-establishment, anti-Washington kind of uh, candidates. So we shouldn't write it off. But if, if we do this right, it becomes a, really a battle between socialism and freedom, which fits in what you were just talking about, whether it's healthcare, housing, education, higher education. In the end, all these promises that are made end up coming with all sorts of liabilities, not the least of which are wait times and rationing, and in people choosing whether newborn babies with deformities get treatment or elderly people like our parents. Um, even get care at all, those are all things that are part of a socialist system that Bernie Sanders is, is advocating for. We just need to be strong in pushing the alternative, which is not more of the same. You know, our problem is not that we have too little government. Our problem is there's too, already too much government bureaucracy in our lives, and we should push for more
1: freedom. Uh, what's the uh, scene like at, uh, at CPAC in terms of, uh, you know, is a lot you have a lot of conservative media and pundits and young people and elected officials and candidates. Give us a sense of the... Uh, enthusiasm level for 2020?
5: It's huge uh, from everybody, but one of the exciting things here at CPAC, more than I've ever seen before, is the number of young conservatives, uh, male and female, people from different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different parts of the country, a real enthusiasm because they know uh, the battle is the fiercest on our college campuses. And if we get the facts out, I mean, after years of un- believably stacking the deck against us, not only in college campuses, but in high school with teacher union, advocate teachers, and textbooks that are biased with media and social media. we got a battle there, but when we break through and we get the facts, I was just at Stanford University the other day. When we get the facts out, people, young people, overwhelmingly come our way, and I think people are excited about that, and they're excited about the potential battle. Uh, between not just Bernie Sanders and our president Donald Trump, but, but the idea is freedom versus socialism.
1: Uh, we're talking to Scott Walker, 45th governor of Wisconsin, president elect of the Young Americas Foundation. When we come back, we'll get his reviews on president's selection of his former gubernatorial colleague, now Vice President Mike Pence, to be point man on the coronavirus response. More with Scott Walker right after this. It was dead. You see, I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. Felt good to be out of the rain. In the desert, you can't remember your name. Cause there ain't no one for to give you no pain. La la la
0: la 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 Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof And this is the Dan Proft Show.
1: We're back with Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin, president-elect of the Young America's Foundation, who's out at CPAC. And I want to get to coronavirus, but uh, before that, uh, obviously, another uh, tragedy happened this week in your home state of Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, with the shooting at the Molson Coors Plant. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on that and the response of Milwaukee police and, and Mayor Barrett, who was a former uh, political adversary of yours, to uh, that uh Horrific event.
5: Well, obviously, the one thing I think we all share in common is how horrific and terrible it is. It just blows you away when you think about how horrible that is. Not only obviously for the victims and their families, but for all the people who work at that uh, at that brewery and, and in that surrounding area, it's going to take a long time to heal uh there at the brewery and, and throughout that community. uh By the same token, though, it it, it always amazes me, you know, having been a governor, having been a county executive i know what people need in a moment like that is people uh, one to make sure they're safe and secure to the extent that they can and then in the following days to to mourn uh, with them And, and instead what you see are a number of politicians out trying to use this to push their own personal agendas we don't know all the facts yet it'll take some time to sort it out but but all too often what we've seen in the past is those who take advantage of these moments we realize the things they're advocating would have had little or no impact and uh, unfortunately, they're just trying to you know shoe, uh, fit shoehorn their, their ideas into the situations. Uh, More often than not with sad situations like this, it's it's just an example, something Democrats and Republicans should be able to deal with. And that is the increasing crisis of uh, mental health issues in our in our world.
1: Uh, So I want to get your take on Mike Pence being named to be the president's point man for the coronavirus response. And and uh, again, a fellow governor at the time, he in Indiana, when you were in Wisconsin. And and just if, if you think that's the right choice and you've been happy with the response from the administration so far.
5: I think it's the right pick. I think Vice President Pence having been a governor is important because one of the things all of us who've been governors, regardless of when or or what our backgrounds, know that one of the most important duties, nothing at this level, but but one of the most important duties is if there's a tornado, a flood, some sort of a disaster, is how you handle it. One of the important things is to be hands-on, to be involving people, to be engaged in the process, and one of the most important things and why I think making The vice president, the point on this is so important, is that it's it's one of those where the information needs to be as centrally located as possible. So if the American people want to know all the facts, one of the important things they need to do is hear from one source, not 15 or 20 different sources, when I was governor, when there was a tragedy, you know, we'd bring the fire chief, the police chief, the head of public health, the local mayor, other people involved all together. We'd give frequent updates, we'd give information, but we made sure it was uniform. And I think that's going to be important, not only from a health standpoint, but the other part of this uh, lesser covered part of the story is, is the impact here and around the world that it will have on, on our nation and our, our global economy. And if we handle this right and things get under control, I think you'll see the economy continue to grow. If things don't go well, it will have an impact not only health-wise, it will at the same time have a a negative impact on the economy. So critically important for more than one reason.
1: It's been striking going back to this sort of central planning versus small-D democratic societies. Striking the response. uh, In North Korea, somebody gets coronavirus and you shoot them, which is literally what happened. In China, there's been all sorts of misinformation and lethargy. In, in the response in Iran, the same thing, uh, putting yeah. a, a show of force uh, in terms of turnout for recent elections ahead of people's public health. And you compare that to the response in Singapore, the response in Taiwan, the response in Israel, where they're talking about perha- perhaps having a vaccine in the next six to eight weeks. And of course, the response in America. It's just striking for uh, this discussion we're having in Amer- as the backdrop of the American election, central planning versus uh, a free democratic society with these civil institutions at, uh, on the front lines and what the response well, it is has a
5: reminder, been. Yeah. And you remember, think of Bernie Sanders, you know, really learning at the, at the, at the foot of the United Soviet socialist republics and the old Soviet union, uh, going to Nicaragua, going to Cuba, talking about these communist regimes and, and, uh, Really relishing the the things that he thinks are done there, we don't want that in the United States. That's we broke away from oppression. We're a free nation, free people, and you know, we uh, you know the best way to care for folks is to give them as many uh, rights and responsibilities at the individual level as opposed to the government level. Uh, you know those rights are endowed by our creator, defined by our constitution. So I just think it's critically important. And also those interesting just the the political nonsense that. And and there's a few Democrats, so I'm not going to put them all in the same boat. There are some out there who are saying, hey, this issue is too important to partisan, uh, bicker bicker over partisan politics to politicize. But you do have people, I mean, my goodness, Elizabeth Warren talking about taking money from the wall. What she doesn't get, she's so blinded by her socialism, views of the world, she doesn't realize – talking about the wall makes our point for why you actually need to control your borders. Yeah, right. The the idea that at this time, more than any other, it would be good to know who's coming in and out of our country and where they're coming from, which is precisely why the president and others are advocating for secure borders, not just for border security. Um, I've said all along. It's more than just who comes in and out to work in this country. It's always been about drugs and uh, human trafficking and firearm trafficking. And in this case, even when it comes to health issues, who's coming into our country and where, if we monitor their airports, it certainly should be done on our land-based uh, borders.
1: The other institution that needs review here, and in my estimation, a good throttling, is the Beltway Media, which, which just foments hysteria while you actually have infectious disease experts saying, calm down, carry on, don't panic. Um, but, that, but, but everything is a blaring Chiron either about Trump or about the end of time.
5: What's it, right. It's a little bit about how sometimes we even think of local TV stations handle, you know, the weather reports when there's a hint of snow coming in. Right. Uh, they're taking it to a whole new level. Um, and can you imagine if this was I mean, I don't think it's hyperbole to think if Barack Obama is president, uh, that same Beltway media would be talking about how. Under control they 've got it, and right. how good things are that we 've got a competent president our now, national father is on,
1: uh, yeah, our national father is on the job, it would be that sort of
5: coverage yeah, yeah i mean it 's just outrageous, I think people can see through that it 's just another example you know we saw it recently uh, uh, with the video expose on abc news and the the staff over there acknowledging that he was a socialist we've seen it in other contexts out there where so many of the traditional national media sources are being exposed for what they really are this is just another example yeah is this a issue we should be focused on and concerned about absolutely should there be mass hysteria Uh, should this be weaponized to be used as a political force in the presidential election? Absolutely not.
1: He is former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and current president-elect of Young America's Foundation, joining us live from CPAC. Scott Walker, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: My pleasure. Great to be with you. Take care.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. From a white wedding to a pink pea hat. Billy Idol, how could you? 80s rebel rocker turned Sandinistan flack for one of Mayor de Blasio's secret lives, or not secret lives, lives of others, right, right out in the open. Stasi uh, proposals that uh, Billy Idol is uh, promoting through a public service campaign to advance the anti-idling ordinances in New York. Start at $350 and run up to $2,000 for repeat offenders. That's if you idle for more than three minutes. Stationary vehicles, including buses, are prohibited from idling for more than three minutes. Otherwise, they're open to a fine. And, of course, how are you going to have police be able to uh, monitor that many people and what they're doing. Well, the way you do that is you incentivize citizens to be snitches. Up to 25% of the fines, or they get, get, get not up to, 25% of the fines collected uh, go to uh, anybody who snitches on somebody and the, the resulting snitch leads to a ticket. It's a bounty program that uh, Sandinista and de Blasio set up. Here's the uh, Billy Idol PSA. Hey New York Billy Idol here, rock
0: star and environmentalist. If you're not driving, shut your damn engine off. Idling is polluting I mean bollocks. Are you trying to choke us all? This city has some of the most hard working creative and awesome people Don't clog our lungs with your car fuels. Billy never idles, so why should you shut it off?
1: Billy Never Learn more Idols. At Billy Never Idols. You get it? Billy Idol, Billy Never Idol. Yeah. This is uh, worse than uh, the previous mayor with his uh, nanny state gambits like regulating the size of your soft drink. At least he wasn't mobilizing the entire population to tattle on one another for cash, turning people into revenue agents for the state. I mean, does Billy Idol need. PSA money so bad that he'll promote an Ursot's enviro campaign in service of a Sandinista inspired placebo for the lobotomized. This is, this is so bad. This is so bad. The only thing I've seen that is more stomach turning than this in the last 24 hours was uh, the recently commuted Rod Blagojevich has wound up in Scaramucci land trying to capitalize on his fleeting notoriety. Rod Blagojevich on Cameo For a hundred bucks.
2: Hey, it's Rob Blagojevich. I'm very excited to connect with you on Cameo. If you want a birthday greeting, an anniversary greeting, motivation, or any other kind of shout out, I can't wait to hear from you.
1: Here's uh, the message I would like. I would spend a hundred bucks if you'd read this message. Hi, Dan. My name is Rob Blagojevich, and I am guilty of the crimes for which I was charged, and my sentence was just... I mean, I'll spend a couple hundred bucks for that. This is the Dan
0: Proft Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.
1: Twitter, at DanProft and at Dan Show. Our next guest, Scott Shalady, just tweeted out a picture. Scott the Cow Guy Shalady uh, just tweeted out a picture of uh, him wearing a uh, Holstein mask. This is why he's on Fox Business is because he leverages his brand equity to merchandise. I mean, that's the play. All right. So some of the economic impacts of COVID-19 being felt, including with respect to the possibility that the Olympics in Japan will be canceled. That's a pending issue. Uh, stories, car and driver story, coronavirus slowing China's auto market. Europe, uh, Europe is starting to feel the effects. For more on uh, the economic impacts of coronavirus and what they're likely to be in the coming days and weeks, we're pleased to be joined by... The aforesaid Scott, the cow guy, Shalady Scott, please sit, take the mask off so we can hear you. <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem like the washout is over yet. What's your uh, best prognostication?
4: Can't fix stupid. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, yeah. You know what, Dan? Governments are people, and people overreact. They can't even err on the side of caution anymore. Now they have to err on the side of hysteria because they're worried about somebody saying that they're not doing their job. So now it has to be absolute hysteria, or you're not doing your job. So the markets are vastly oversold. Yes, we are going to have a slower growth. We're going to have some points taken off of GDP. But to react to something that's a more contagious flu in this manner is absurd. But you can't get in front of it because there's so many people that are, and unfortunately, there's some collateral damage, which are going to be some of those retirees um, that just lost 10% of what they've had in their 401ks for absolutely really no good reason. Now, the markets were overbought. Yes, we could have taken some off the top there, but the smart money's getting in. I mean, I'm just telling you right now, the smart money's getting in. So, you know, let, let them do what they want to do, but this is going to create a lot of opportunity.
1: So, with a sell off, I mean, part of this, it seems to me, is people who've done very well over the last couple of years. And they're basically saying, I've made enough. I'm going to take my money off the table. I was looking for a reason. This is the reason. Uh, And it's people that are sort of similarly situated, just making different decisions. Other people saying, I've got a lot of money. This isn't a big deal. I'm just going to ride it out but there's enough of those people saying I want to take my profits and take my money off the table that's fomenting the spiral, yes?
4: I mean, the whole movie theater is trying to get out one small door. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, look, we had everything priced to perfection, which is also a bad thing, too. Right, well, not a bad thing, but that just makes things a little bit more tenuous. So we had everything priced to perfection, and then this virus opened up, and then, you know what, initially, initially the markets took it fine. Uh, but then this last week, obviously, it's been an absolute bloodbath. Bloodbath, And, you know, for guys in the business like myself that like to see if things open up and give us some opportunity, this is a perfect opportunity. So, you know, we could be down again today, big deal. But at the end of the day, if you would have bought the high in the market every year, the last 40 years... You could retire.
1: Uh, what, and what oh, about the yeah. market for uh, door jams where you can put uh, knives <laughs> right. and other weaponry?
4: Well, though, there's stock, there's the stocks de jour that people are thinking are going to really give them a bump here because they are places that deliver to your door. You don't have to go outside. You know, people are going to be working from home. Um, those will be short lived. This will be in the rearview mirror. And I would say this: there's a lot of guys out there, and I and I and I look like a fool for a little while because I don't believe gold is a safe haven play. And a lot of folks piled into that over the last few days, and it's now starting to come off, even though the market's still coming off, because there's really only two reasons you want to own gold. It's a place to hide out your cash when we have times of inflation. And boy, oh boy, have we ever not seen inflation more than we do now, number one. And number two, it's another place to hide your capital when we might see some signs of Armageddon. Love Trump or hate Trump, we're not in the middle of any Armageddon. So if the first two things that I would say are the reasons to own gold aren't there, yeah, we had a lot of folks pile into it, but man, they're getting killed right now, the thing, if you still really want to go into something that's safe, the good old U.S. Treasury is the place to go still. And that's held up. I mean, we went under 120 this morning in the 10-year yield. So what about, that would have been – go
1: what, ahead. What, what about, so you talked about the smart monies getting in, and I got in uh, yesterday, and I'll probably get in more today. Just, and I'm no professional. I'm not licensed, so I can spout off like everybody else just as much as I want. Uh, but, but the, the question, the, the, the question, the smart money getting in when you say that, uh, picking specific blue chip stocks with uh, good looking balance sheets rather than index funds. So you're getting, you know, you're, you're being specific and surgical rather than uh, taking everything that may come.
4: Uh, lazy, smart, lazy is not specific. Smart, smart is specific. I mean, there are some great stocks out there that have just gotten absolutely hammered for for no good reason. And so if you love them, you know, two weeks ago, you got to really fall in love with them today. So those guys are going to be out there a little bit more surgically. But then there are other people that just don't have that ability to do that in that research. And maybe not just lazy, but they can't, you know, they can't deploy 50 computers to find something for them. And you can just go out and buy a fund and, and take advantage of where the market's at right now. And that'll that'll be okay Too. It's just not going to be as surgical. So there's tons of opportunity. This is what the market really kind of needed. We were going up on uh, hot air for a long time here. And this is, I say, a healthy thing to have happen. So it's going to create a great opportunity for most people.
1: Your friend uh, Jim Urio, we had on the show yesterday, CNBC contributor, he said he supports a proposal floated by some, including uh, former uh, Fed Board of Governor Kevin Marsh, to uh, have the Fed cut the rate by a quarter point to signal everything's okay, is that something you subscribe to as well?
4: no I love Jimmy but I don't think you should cut rates because of a virus <laughs> I mean yet we're gonna see some GDP kind of tail off here a little bit but I would also say this the market did the work for the president the markets done the work for Jimmy we saw that 10-year yield dip below 1.2 percent already so it's already kind of being reflected out there as is the only reason I would say that the Fed might want to come in and do a quarter percent cut it's just window dressing is a quarter percent gonna make a difference to anybody it's only a psychological move it's not really money move and so i tell you what i think with what's happening in europe we we have we've got tougher times around the corner i would save those bullets
1: uh now uh this story got uh, completely washed away by the coronavirus hysteria but it was interesting nonetheless because this is obviously a long-term play morgan stanley uh moving to purchase e-trade and looking to expand and diversify their clientele looking for the you know the non-multi-millionaire investor doesn't that say something about what they think the growth potential is for the economy and for middle-income families who are, who are desirous of investing in the market to help uh, prepare for their retirement?
4: 100% correct, and I had a comment on it earlier. I mean, there was a couple of people that did notice it, and it's a big deal. I mean, obviously, they've just bought themselves a lot of customers, but there has been an undercurrent in the market here for probably I would say the last five years where we've started to see more and more of these banks like Morgan Stanley have to kind of pander, not pander, but they've gone after uh, the middle class and the middle aged to younger millennials because that's been a big market. And believe it or not, they're saving uh, more than we thought they would, and also they're doing it through really not traditional manner. I mean, E-Trade's obviously going to be more traditional, but you've got RoboAdvisor at some places. I don't know what, what bank has that, but there's a lot of places you can do that just on your phone. So that market is really starting to become uh, something that everybody's been going after, and it's been slowly but surely bubbling up. So that middle age and then middle age to millennial is, is really where these these big boys are really starting to focus their guns.
1: Now, uh, uh, for our doomsday preppers in the audience, those who uh, switch back and forth between us and Alex Jones, uh, you mentioned gold. What about uh, cryptocurrency, notwithstanding Steven Seagal's SEC problems for for pitching uh, B2G, uh, Bitcoin second gen?
4: You know, I still subscribe to what uh, Warren Buffett has to say. You know, if your investment strategy is that I think the guy standing in the line behind me is going to pay more for what I'm buying today, that's not a strategy. And so I think that you've seen some money pile into Bitcoin when we do have, uh, when the markets get nervous because, and and some folks have tried to say, try to tell me that it's a a place that, you know, money flies to quality there or flight to quality. no you know what it is, is there's so many people around the world that have electronic access to our markets. And a lot of times the only things that they really have access to from India or wherever they're trading is gold and Bitcoin. And so when the world gets nervous, those are the only two ways that they can express their money, maybe in dollars somehow. And I think that a lot of that is from smaller investors around the world that make those places look like a place where you're going to see a flight to quality, when it's really not. That's a false, that's a false narrative.
1: Is, uh, is the market overreacting to the uh, potential dangers to supply chains? Tim Cook tried to signal yesterday that he was pretty optimistic that the Apple supply chain would hold. Warren Buffett earlier in the week said, you know, he's not getting out of the market to try and also uh, allay some hysteria. It didn't work, but... Uh, But what's your assessment of the market's reaction to the threat of supply chain interruptions as one of the other reasons why this has spiraled?
4: At best, I think it shines a light. You might want to say, if you're the CEO, eh, maybe we should have a disaster recovery plan or someplace else that we might want to do 10 or 15 percent. Maybe we don't need to be 100 percent reliant upon it. However, you know, I agree with Warren Buffett, and I think that it'll, it'll all pass. It's just not going to be the dire, you know, the world's coming to an end thing like everybody's saying it is. But I do think that you might want to think, and I think it was a good idea to say that. Trump was in India, right? That could be a place where some of these supply chains move, and I'm sure that's why he was over there, kind of stoked some of that, that rhetoric there as well. I, I'm not a doomsdayer on this. I just think that people were using this as an excuse. There have been some, there's some nervous traders out there. There's some people that are, are you know, erring on the side of absolute hysteria, and the, and the mainstream media kind of stokes it. It's uh, all said and done. I, you know, a year from now, you're going to look back and go, What was I thinking?
1: Scott, the Cow Guy, shalady, Fox Business contributor. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Appreciate it.
4: Yeah.
0: seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Chicago is not the first city to do it, but the uh, dominoes continue to fall. Seattle, Minneapolis, Columbus, Ohio. Chicago, goodbye Columbus Day. CPS, Chicago Public School System, ends the holiday in favor of Indigenous Peoples Day. Chicago Public School board member Elizabeth Todd Breland. uh, She uh, claiming to be a historian. (laughs) I believe in the transformative potential of culturally responsible education. Let me read that to you again. This is her defense of canceling uh, Columbus Day in favor of the generic Indigenous Peoples Day. I believe in transformative potential, the transformative potential of culturally responsive education. Let me translate that for you. What uh, Elizabeth Todd Breland, who's basically like a 1619 uh, project race racketeer at the local level, what she's actually saying I believe in rewriting America's discovery with Agitprop, the way the 1619 project is rewriting its founding as part of our larger race racketeering scheme to train kids to be reliable cultural Marxists and fulfill his promise of revolution. That's what she's saying. Ahistorical. Wildly ignorant. In point of fact, I'm a bit confused, actually. Uh, You're uh, scrapping Columbus Day as to the nation's founding. And by the way, what about uh, offering a new name for America? America, right, uh, named for Amerigo Vespucci, the Italian explorer. Uh Uh-oh. And the Italians are none too happy. This is a slap in the face to the more than 500,000 Italian-Americans in Chicago and the 135 million Italian-Americans worldwide, said Sergio Giangrande, president of the Joint Civic Committee of Italian-Americans in Illinois. The group is going to challenge the Chicago Public Schools decision and they've mounted a campaign to reverse the action. I got to tell you, especially because I mentioned these other cities that have done it. I don't understand how people feign surprise when these things come to pass. The measures like this have been floating right up the Chicago River to Lake Michigan for a decade. We have a mayor in Chicago who, upon announcing her candidacy for the mayoralty, said, I'm a triple threat. I'm a triple threat because I'm black, female and lesbian. Those are the qualifiers. Those are the qualifiers. This is an identitarian city and state. So the Italians who are feigning surprise, many of whom are Democrats who support the Democrat power structure in the state, well, it's a lot of crocodile tears as far as I'm concerned. The, the 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 oh my gosh the captain renault routine gambling in the gambling hall just tiresome and it's a cover story for providing a little bit of outrage making some noise and then accepting accepting what is in chicago accepting the latest iteration of cultural marxism but the indigenous people say that's the that's the curious one to me here's why because i understand uh, you know getting rid of columbus sure But um, I assume, because uh, these are historians, (laughs) as Ms. Todd Breland self-describes, I assume that means that uh, they're going to be teaching Chicago public school kids about the Stone Age Europeans, the Stone Age people from Europe that uh, came to America thousands of years before American Indians set foot in the New World. Uh, Yeah, it turns out, and this is also old, so I don't know why people are surprised. Professor Dennis Stanford of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., Professor Bruce Bradley of the University of Exeter, the two leading archaeologists analyzed all the evidence discovered eight years ago, proposed the Stone Age people from Western Europe migrated to North America at the height of the Ice Age, traveling over ice service. I surface along the edge of the frozen part of the Atlantic, frozen northern part of the Atlantic. Uh, They've presented all their evidence in a new book called uh, a new book at the time called Across Atlantic Ice. Uh, European style stone tools dating back between 19,000 and 26,000 years were discovered. At six locations across along the U.S. East Coast, three of the sites are on the Delmarva Peninsula in Maryland discovered by archaeologist Darren Lowry of the University of Delaware. One is in Pennsylvania, another in Virginia. A sixth discovered by scallop-dredging fishermen on the seabed 60 miles from the Virginia coast on what would have been dry land in prehistoric times. The new discoveries, I'm reading from a, a UK tabloid from 2012. The new discoveries, then, are among the most important archaeological breakthroughs for several decades, add substantially to our understanding of humanity's spread around the globe, and so on and so forth. They do the chemical analysis, they Provide the dating on the uh, items that were discovered. And this is what you get. So so is that what's going to be happening in the Chicago Public Schools? Is that what's happening in Seattle and Minneapolis and Columbus, of all places, Columbus, Ohio? Talking about uh, educating the kiddies about uh, Stone Age, stone tool technologies, and the Western Europeans who made their way to North America? I doubt it. Right? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. These are totalitarian re-education centers with few exceptions for 90% of the kids, those who are not uh, the scions of uh, the wealthier, the politically clouded. And frankly, at some of the most expensive schools, the curriculum is no different than it is at some of the worst schools. You know, Howard's in Redux. And, And by the way, here's a quick aside. So much focus on curriculum and the books that are presented for children to read, other oh, videos. If I were the conscientious parent worried about what's going on in my kid's school, I would focus less on worrying about extracting bad scholarship than I would on presenting good scholarship to be included. We have, as conservatives and uh, those who believe in absolute truth, those who believe in natural law, those who want the full account of history to be told and understood. We're confident enough in our ideas. We don't we we don't need to worry about uh, removing Howard Zinn from the classroom. We should be worried about getting uh, a gentleman we spoke with a couple weeks ago, Wilford McClay, professor, at the University of Oklahoma, his Land of Hope, American history textbook into the classroom. And uh, just like with the 1619, the 1776 project. Read all the essays from the 1619 scholars and read all the essays from at 1776unites.com from those black intellectuals. Make up your own mind. That's the same thing in school. Worry about what's not in the classroom more so than what is. Put them in the position of being the 21st century book burners because that's who they are. That's who they are. And so what's happened now? You No. Know, A couple of generations after eliminating math and reading from the curriculum, now Chicago, like uh, other major urban centers controlled by cultural Marxists and the teachers unions uh, at the head of that pyramid. Now they've uh, eliminated history in exchange for political ideology, identitarian politics as the curriculum. Right. Stop being surprised. Why would they stop? You may have noticed how successful they've been and uh, how little pushback they get. And I suspect, at least in Chicago, that will continue to be the paradigm. This is The Dan Prof. Show.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We spoke with uh, Kay Himowitz from uh, the Manhattan Institute earlier in the week about um, the uh, men who are MIA in our economy uh, and in terms of forming familial bonds. Uh, she noted in testimony before a recent congressional committee did Hemowitz that as of October 2019, more than 10 percent of the prime age male population was out of the labor market. In other words, they're not accounted for in the unemployment stats because they're not searching for work. They're just out. And, um, I thought of that testimony when I read this piece from our next guest, Casey chalk, the military won't save men from Doritos and porn, uh, provocative title, but it gets to this issue of purposefulness. And, uh, it's a very thoughtful piece. Pleased to be joined by Casey chalk, senior contributor at crisis columnist for the American conservative and the new Oxford review. Casey, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: So, uh, Doritos and porn purposelessness, uh, you, you remark in your, your piece about, uh, one, uh, individual you, uh, read on social media talking about, yeah, maybe I'll join the Navy to avoid purpose purposelessness in my life. And you are somebody who served in the armed forces and, um, Uh, In your piece, you disabuse uh, young people of the romantic vision of military service, number one. But more importantly, you speak to that void that exists in the lives of so many men, young men.
2: Yeah, um, right. So I can certainly sympathize um, with the person who contemplates um, military service as a means of acquiring purpose. And the, the the point of my piece was definitely not to say there's no purpose in no. serving in the military. Right. I think that uh, there's a there's a great purpose in serving in it. A lot of uh, you know, my, my father served in Vietnam. Uh, a lot of my other family members have served in the military, too. Um, but I I was concerned about a certain romanticism of military life as if uh, it would be a way to escape from the same kinds of problems that we're finding in our secularized, as you mentioned, um, sort of like bored uh, uh, culture for men in the United States.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's the um, the idea I, I, that, number one, um, nothing is without uh, a give and take. There are things that are redeeming and interesting and uh, life affirming with everything. And then there are challenges, things that are less so. I'm sure that's the case in the military, though I never served, but you sort of recount that. Um But but um, but it seems to me the crux of this issue, which everybody sort of wants to dance around or a lot of people want to dance around, is character formation. That's what's not happening at the K through 12 level, leaving young men sort of listless and hapless and, uh, you know, sort of the proverbial drowning man looking for something that floats.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's right. I think a lot of that, um, unfortunately, has to do with confusion about gender roles in american society now um i I think that there uh is i think there's less of a place for young men to find themselves a lot of um young men are told um (laughs) within their school settings that they are oppressors um i think about i have a four-year-old son it's kind of strange for me to think that my that my son just because he's a white male is somehow contributing to an oppressive culture (laughs) um but (laughs) When they're hearing those kinds of messages, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's going to contribute to a sense of malaise and purposelessness.
1: And uh, and so so, you know, what's the uh, what's the recommendation about the military, perhaps specifically, but just in generally as a relatively young man yourself, but a family man, obviously, uh, but also and also somebody who served.
2: Um, So, yeah, well, certainly any kind of service. For our country, I think has has great value, and I think that would be maybe the first place I would start is is just um, I think that um, yeah, if you're familiar with uh, Putnam's Bowling Alone book, right? Just Americans generally are not contributing to um, the kinds of organizations where civic formation and civic responsibility are inculcated, right? So that can be the military, but that could also just be being involved in local community and government organizations. It can be doing community service. Um, it can be being involved in a local church. Uh, certainly we have a lot of social uh, problems right now that require the help of young men. I know a lot of young men are right in the midst of it with things like porn addiction and opiate addiction. Um, but for those who are in a position to help, certainly those who are recovering from those kinds of addictions, they, they should view themselves as in a great position to, uh, to serve and sacrifice uh, for those other people in their community who are more vulnerable.
1: Yeah, um, um, a military platoon, fine, or, or one of the Burkean platoons of democracy, these civic organizations you speak of.
2: Yes, yeah, exactly. I think that's, yeah, he, I, I love that phrase.
1: Uh, we're going to be right back with uh, Casey Chalk, more with him. I want to get his reaction to a new Pentagon study about uh, trans, uh, trans individuals serving in the military, as well as, uh, well, we're going to talk a little bit of baseball. Uh, more with Casey Chalk, senior contributor at Crisis, columnist for the American Conservative. After this.
2: Exposing
0: oh, <laughs> <historical laughs> political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show.
1: Back with Casey Chalk. He's a senior contributor at Crisis Magazine, columnist for the American Conservative, and the New Oxford Review. And uh, this uh, study out, uh, Casey, uh, Pentagon funded study 66% of non transgender military members support the inclusion of transgender people in the military. 71% of the larger public supports transgender inclusion in the military, too. So naturally, the study concludes that policies limiting transgender service in the military should be lifted, given these data. Um, Before we even get into the issue of the cohesion issues and so forth, accommodation issues with uh, trans people in the military, the idea that a Pentagon-funded study would conclude because something is popular, it should necessarily be inculcated post-haste is so troubling to me.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I'd also be curious to know exactly who they're serving, um, talking about that kind of thing. Yeah, certainly a lot of the people I know from their service, including family members who are still in the armed forces, would not be in favor of that. And why is that? There's a, there's actually a recent book on this that I also reviewed for the American Conservative. I forget the title off the top of my head. But the transgenderism is, as you mentioned, there, there are issues with unit cohesion, the ability of... Uh, being able to feel like you, you are united to your fellow soldiers. And if someone is undergoing gender realignment surgery and therapy, then that is going to cause all kinds of problems. Also, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know how someone who's actually involved in combat uh, in a combat role would be able to, uh, to continue to serve in that function if they are in the midst of some sort of gender uh, reconfiguration. I mean, th- that, that requires um, all kinds of counseling, and uh, medical services and hormone treatments that uh, can't really be done on the battlefield.
1: Uh, Let's uh, move from uh, sexualizing uh, the military to sexualizing school kids. Uh, You wrote a piece for Crisis Magazine, Just Say No, talking about uh, uh, a bill in the Maryland state legislature requiring sex education classes be taught to 13-year-olds, including on the meaning of consent. Here in Illinois, uh, we'll do you one better. We've got a legislation pending that would mandate HPV vaccines for sixth graders, boys and girls, no religious exemption. Um, So this uh, this continuing assault on um, the uh, by by uh, K through 12 school systems on uh, what I would suggest are the, um, the the proper purview of parents and also just this relentless push to sexualize children and of course we see this with trans movement the trans rights movement as well with celebrating prepubescent drag queens and talking about um uh, uh surgery on children uh to uh, essentially accede to their demands to be uh, uh something other than their uh, biological sex.
2: Yeah, I it um it's consistently confounding to me that um Our society, even our our very secular liberal society, understands in many respects that that, that there are certain things that need to be withheld from children until they have the proper development in order to handle certain responsibilities, right? So like alcohol is a great example of that. Uh, In Virginia, where I live, you can't drink alcohol until you're 21 because the Commonwealth recognizes that someone is not – a a 16-year-old, for example, is not capable of making good decisions with alcohol. So I'm confused as to why, uh, you know, even a a secularized liberal culture would think that children as young as 13 year olds, in the case of those I was talking about in my article, would be capable of um, handling the complex, not just there's the physical component of sexuality, but there's also the emotional and psychological components of it that really do require someone who's mature. Um, Yeah.
1: Well, right. And so um, uh, with respect to that, uh, in Illinois— where I'm located, we just uh, had the legislature and the governor raise the smoking age to 21. So you're not, uh, you know, you don't have the capacity to make a good health decision when it comes to smoking a cigarette until 21. Got to protect the kids. But, uh, you know, a six-year-old who wants to have his genitals cut off, to be quite straight about it, um, that's something that we should indulge, despite the fact that we know from a lot of research on the topic That uh, the outcomes for those who had reassignment surgery, whether young people or people that are, you know, of well past the age of consent, has not been good, has not been positive, has not remedied whatever it is, whatever, you know, whatever brokenness they have. And so it doesn't drive good patient outcomes. It runs completely counter to so much of the other messaging that comes from the government about uh, consent and the ability to make independent decisions about this thing or that thing. And uh, yet it uh, persists at
2: breakneck pace. Yeah, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Walt Heyer, who writes as a federalist, where I write pretty frequently. He's a great example of this. And he's written uh, lots of articles, I believe a book as well, talking about so many of the people who regret their decisions regarding um, their uh, sexual realignment surgeries and all the hormone treatments that can have permanent damage. Um, And, yeah, why we would want to try and indulge a six-year-old's, you know, whims and fancies regarding this thing, oftentimes pushed by parents um, who have their own agendas. Uh, Yeah, it's very disturbing.
1: Uh, I wanted to get, uh, before we let you go, and since you uh, took the time to write about it, and since uh, spring training is uh, afoot and uh, opening day is a month away, uh, the Astros and the cheating scandal there, um, something that really you haven't seen in baseball uh, since, the doping era of the nineties in terms of the potential damage that the Astros have done to the game and fans, you know, rebelling against the game. And, and you think, uh, that the Astros haven't done enough to be held, uh, enough to fully account for what they did and they should be, you know, punished by a baseball fan initiative.
2: Yeah. I, I am a lifelong baseball fan. It's, you know, talk about things that we get from our, our, you know, sons get from their fathers. My father ingrained that in me, uh, playing baseball. And uh, you know, Pete Rose was one of his favorite players. And it was devastating for him when he found out about the gambling uh, that he was involved in. And it's sort of a similar thing with um, with the effect of this that this can have on an entire generation of kids, right? And especially if, like these Astros players, they are not demonstrating a sense of true remorse regarding their activities, I mean, if this is going to teach kids, not just you know in the Houston area but across the country, that cheating's okay as long as uh, you don't get caught. And even if you do get caught, you know, you can just sort of wave in the general direction of, uh, of forgiveness, and that's sufficient. Baseball is, uh, it's, I would argue, it's sacrosanct. It's a, it's a fundamental part of American culture. There are a great many heroes in the game who. We're not just on the on the diamond, right? But uh, who served in the military, um, and uh, and we need to preserve that uh, for the sake for the sake of the game, but also just for the sake of the culture because it is such an important tool for uh, teaching virtue and excellence to young men.
1: Uh, I agree, and I'm I'm a diehard White Sox fan, season ticket holder in Chicago, and I'm still trying to recover from the 1919 Black Sox scandal. So that's how lasting it is. <laughs> Casey Chalk, senior contributor at Crisis, columnist for the American Conservative and the New Oxford Review. Casey, thanks for joining
2: us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Happy to be here. The more you listen, the more
0: you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, President Trump had a little confab at the White House before he uh, jetted off to South Carolina for his Friday night rally. Is he uh, trolling Democrats with these uh, rallies in states where they're about to have a primary caucus election?
0: Hmm. Immediately, we have tremendous popularity in South Carolina. We're mm-hmm. going to go down. Some people have said, I'm trolling the Democrats, and maybe I am. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and uh, among those in attendance to the uh, confab of uh, black Americans celebrating Black History Month, uh, independent uh, black Americans, conservative black Americans, Trump supporters all, Jack Brewer, former safety for the Vikings and a few other teams, he said this.
0: I gotta, up, but I gotta say this, because this is Black History Month, man, you the first black president. Oh! <laughs>
1: And of course uh, that drew howls from the beltway, big government press corps, the identitarians. How dare, how dare Jack Brewer suggest that, uh, Trump is the first black president. How dare he diss the legacy of president Obama and so on and so forth. Well, it turns out, uh, Jack Brewer, he was a supporter of Obama the first time around when he ran in 2008. And here's what Jack Brewer did. He, uh, looked at what Obama did as president, the policies he pursued, the impact that he had for black Americans, for urban centers. And he said, I don't want to support that anymore. Revolutionary, huh? You know, this is uh, why President Trump is making this foray into uh, black uh, neighborhoods in big cities in swing states around the country, setting up these 15 community centers, This is, uh, this is why, I mean, the Jack Brewers of the world that have been mugged by the reality of people they once supported, a party they once supported. In addition to that, uh, President Trump and his campaign advisors can uh, read uh, the polling just as well as anybody else. And uh, I mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. You know, one third of self-identified black American voters, Uh, Democrats say they're not happy with the candidates running. They wish somebody else was running. So that disaffection provides opportunity, one, to consider Trump and uh, maybe try and get past some of the things you don't like about him or the things you've been told not to like about him by the press corps and look at the impact he's had on your lives, the policies have had on your lives. That may be one. Or you say, well, I don't like him, but I can't bring myself to go along with the charade on the other side. So I'll sit home. That's what happened to Hillary Clinton. And that's in part why President Trump won. Uh, We talked uh, to Victor Davis Hanson at the beginning of the show. You know, President Trump starts to approach 15, perhaps north of 15 percent of the black vote. It's over. He had 30 percent of the Latino vote uh, four years ago. He starts to approach 35 40% of Latino vote. It's over. And he knows it. And a lot of Democrat socialists know it, too. This is The Dan Proft Show.
0: Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Proft Show.
1: You are fake news. Twitter at Danproft and at Danproft Show. Oh boy. Miriam Ben Shalom is the first lesbian to be reinstated to the U.S. Army after being kicked out for her sexual orientation. So it makes uh, what she had to say uh, up there in, uh, about uh, what's going on in Madison, Wisconsin, that much more interesting. Miss Ben Shalom speaking out against the indoctrination of children by the trans community, quote unquote. She championed the cause of parents in Madison who were suing the local school district over the issue. It's time to put a stop to the sort of indoctrination of children by the trans community, big pharma and big medicine. As a teacher of 37 years, I wonder what goes on in the mind of a man who thinks that because he goes about in woman face, that gives him the right to force his system of beliefs on young children. This isn't what teachers are supposed to do, is it? Uh, Miriam Ben Shalone has now been canceled. She'll never be allowed to talk again. For more on this topic of trans, we're pleased to be joined by Libby Evans, contributor to Spectator USA, Colette and the American Conservative. She uh, has written much on this topic and she has more offerings, as do we, more offerings in legislative form to discuss. Libby, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Hi, thanks for having
1: me. Miriam Ben Shalom, lesbian, uh, self-described radical feminist. I mean, can't we all just get along? What What is going on here?
6: Well, I think a lot of the problem has to do with the, as she's concerned about the indoctrination of children in this ideology. For most people who give thought to you know, trans people or trans ideology, the idea is that what adults do and how they want to present themselves is their business as it is for all of us. But when it comes to these ideas being perpetrated in education during children's formative years of development, it's just really absurd to think that an educator should be telling a child not to trust their own bodies as reality. You know, not to believe that their bodies are an innate part of the fabric of reality. And I think that's where a lot of people who have jumped on board with opposition to trans ideology in the past few years have come down on it.
1: What uh, are we to say about parents, high-profile ones, use them as an example, like Charlize Theron or Dwayne Wade, who say uh, we should celebrate uh, a prepubescent child identifying as different than their biological gender, And if he or she wants to have surgery to codify the gender to which they identify, then that's what we should do.
6: I think there's a few things to say about that. Some of these kids probably would have been gay. And we had a massive movement at the end of the 20th century into the 21st about how it should be socially acceptable to be gay. You know, gay marriage is legal now. So I think that's one thing. It's kind of like, why can't your kid just be gay? Why does, it have to, why does the child have to be cured of their homosexuality by changing their bodies to reflect something else? Another thing is that putting these kids in the public eye, I think, does the kid a disservice because it assumes that this child is going to be hard and fast to this new identity and this new ideology and that they're never going to want to turn back on it. I have a friend who um, has a child who is uh, trans and has been prescribed testosterone. And, you know, the child was using the testosterone and everything and she kept forgetting to use it. And so my friend was like, you know, then I was reminding her to use it. And I was like, no, don't, don't remind her if she doesn't want to use it, she won't. And if she does want to use it, she'll remember to do it, but let her have this door out. Don't make this identity, be a wall between her and everything else, we don't need to pack them into this box and just say, okay, you live in this box. That was very hard to, we all know, it's very hard to walk something back once you've been wrong. No one wants to do that. Hey, I was totally wrong. I'm not really a boy. I'm actually a girl. If you're public with the transition of your child, then your child has to be public when they de-transition. And I think it should be a lot easier to let kids turn around on that and get out of this thing once they've gotten involved in
1: it if they don't want it. And and to your point, the research into outcomes, the research into this suggests that there are a lot of people that are wildly unhappy to the point of suicidal after having done a a transition, after having done a surgical transition. You know, that wasn't what was wrong with them. That wasn't the challenge that they were really dealing with. It was, you know, a mental issue, a gender dysphoria issue the uh, cure turns out to be worse than the ailment.
6: Yeah, and it's not a cure. Like, trans surgery is not a cure. And you've had plenty of people who have undergone trans surgery coming out and saying, like, you know, my dysphoria persisted. As you said, I was still suicidal. And it could be that, you know, the only thing wrong with people is that we don't value life. We don't value ourselves. We don't value humanity. We think that human beings are the problem with the world as opposed to, you know, like, the world is our gift you know, we have this, we have have to take care of it, but we also have to take care of ourselves. There's this whole environmentalism, which, you know, I'm bored with a lot of environmentalist ideas, but why is it that the one thing in nature that we decry as a problem is ourselves? Why is everything in nature terrific except for human beings?
1: Just uh, continuing on in terms of how this is presenting itself around the country, California legislation has been introduced that would require all retail department stores with 500 or more employees to do away with boys aisles and girls aisles that require children's products to be offered in a single and and require children's products to be offered in a single gender neutral section because girls shouldn't have to search for jock straps and cups any more than boys.
6: Yeah, I don't, I I think that this is a problem we've invented for ourselves. When I was a kid, we just had toys and it it wasn't like there was a pink aisle and a blue aisle but then what happened is you had advertisers coming on board and you had complaints about how toys weren't inclusive enough. So the next thing you know, we have pink trucks and we have like Legos for girls specifically and all this stuff. I don't remember ever feeling like there were toys I couldn't have access to because I was a girl instead of a boy. They were just all toys and they were in primary colors. There wasn't a ton of pink toys. There wasn't a ton of blue toys. So this is a problem we created out of for ourselves out of a desire to be more inclusive. And it turns out that, you know, dividing everybody up and putting them into boxes is not inclusive, but a divisive action. So we're like reversing something that didn't need to be reversed in the first place and isn't a problem. You know what I'm saying? It's ridiculous. Uh, like how about we just put all the clothes on one rack?
1: Absolutely. You know we absolutely should. It's always interesting to me when uh, people want to prevent research from being disclosed publicly. It's always interesting to me when people don't want to present evidence to support their argument or have no evidence to support their argument. And uh, Mm -hmm. so one example of this is the research that was done at Brown University about uh, trans as as uh, significantly uh, a social contagion. Uh, Right. That was uh, suppressed. And now we have uh, and you wrote about this. Uh, research the canadian government government promised to provide about uh, hate speech against uh, people based on their gender identity and they won't provide it why is that
6: that's right um yeah well in canada with uh bill c16 the idea is that when trudeau came to office he promised that um any legislation before it went through would be accompanied by this gender analysis um a gba a gender bias and I don't remember exactly yeah it, that's right but would be accompanied yes yeah, would be accompanied by this um analysis and everything has been accompanied by this analysis but then bill 16 c16 comes in which is talking about extending protections to gender expression and gender identity two things which don't actually have any real definitions it was not accompanied by a gba and when um it was discussed in Parliament. There were some representatives who said, "Hey, where's the GBA?" and then they voted for it anyway. So a woman um, put together a petition to get the GBA, and it was denied. Um, you know, she's been trying to, she was trying to get an MP to back it for a long time because that's how it works in Canada. If you want to have a petition before the House of Commons, you have to get an MP to um, authorize it. And she went after several MPs. She eventually sent out an email to every MP in Canada asking for someone to authorize her petition. And she got one positive reply. Everyone else was like, nope, we're not going to touch this at all. Within 24 hours, she had more than the necessary number of signatures to get this released. Um, And it's still not going anywhere. You know, she's filed the equivalent of the, um, Freedom of Information Act request in Canada. And uh, yeah, I, you you get the sense that they either don't want to release it because they didn't do the report or they don't want to release it because it shows that protections for gender, gender identity and expression put women and children at risk.
1: It's yeah, one of those two things. Yeah. It turns out that the uh, trans uh, bien-pensant is uh, greater than the need for transparency or evidence. That's what we see happening over and over again it seems to me yeah she is libby evans contributor to spectator usa Quillette, the american conservative uh check out her pieces at both postmillennial.com which i'll tweet out as well as at the federalist.com on this topic libby thanks as always for joining us appreciate it
6: thank
0: you so much. grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We touched on it a bit with uh, former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker in the first hour, but I want to revisit that. it. it is really striking to uh, watch the competing responses from you know, at least quasi-free societies as compared to the command-control societies, the Taiwans, the Singapores, the Israels, the United States, as compared to China, Iran, North Korea. It really tells you something about uh, perhaps what system of government you'd prefer to live under. Maybe something that informs wide swaths of the American electorate over the next eight months. Uh, Give you an example. The uh, Singaporean president, uh, he, uh, Prime Minister, I should say, Lee Shin Lung. This is an example of a a public pronouncement he made uh, providing information to Singaporeans about... uh, the nature of the threat, as well as the response by their government.
4: The new coronavirus is similar to SARS, but with two important differences. First, the new virus is more infectious than SARS. Therefore, it's harder to stop it from spreading. Second, the new virus is much less dangerous than SARS. About 10% of those who caught SARS died. With a new virus, outside of Hubei province, the mortality rate is so far only 0.2%. In comparison, seasonal influenza has a death rate of 0.1%. So in terms of mortality, the new virus is much closer to influenza than SARS.
1: Right, and of course Hubei province is where Wuhan is located in China. Uh, also the, uh, Taiwanian response, compare that to China. Good piece at the diplomat.com Chinese scientists, uh, by the way, in terms of you're we're still, you know, what we know and what we don't know, go back to the interview we had uh, on last night's program with Roger Klein, microbiologist, former head of oncology at the Cleveland clinic, you know, the thoughtfulness, the restraint, we're talking about an expert's expert with respect to infectious diseases, Consulted to the FDA and, Uh, CMS, and uh, HHS, we don't still know with any certainty, there's competing theories, about where the virus originated. Chinese scientists writing in the Lancet Medical Journal, respected British medical journal, uh, revealed that the first patient known to have contracted the coronavirus had no link to the Wuhan seafood market that the Chinese government pointed to as the source of the outbreak. And yet there are still uh, credible infectious disease experts that think that it... uh, probably originated with a bat at one of these food markets in Wuhan. Maybe it did. We don't know. Point is, have some humility about what you know and don't know, and listen to medical professionals who are uh, exercising restraint and discipline and thoughtfulness and taking the time to offer explanations, as opposed to hysterics on your television screen or dumb-dumb politicians. Now, going back to this, comparing China to Taiwan, even though the uh, even though Taiwan had not been kept officially informed by the WHO, World Health Organization, about the epidemic, the Taiwanese government promptly undertook measures to prevent the spread of the virus in Taiwan in late December of last year. Organized the Central Epidemic Command Center in January Then set up uh, since the setup of that uh, command center, it's been holding press conferences almost daily to announce the latest policy and information on the epidemic to clarify rumors that are circulating on social media. The Taiwanese government also uses digital tools to communicate with the public in the virus uh, amid the virus outbreak. Uh, Politicians there have used social media accounts and, uh, you know, the associated platforms, Facebook, YouTube, to keep the public informed on everything from the number of available, available face masks to updated policy. Uh, They also uh, you had uh, somebody, an entrepreneur. Here we go too. uh, the entrepreneur response. Taiwanese software engineer built an online online real time app that can show where masks are stocked at convenience stores and drugstores across the island. Following this idea, the digital minister of the government, uh, a coordinator between government and private sector, developed a better version of the information platform with government data. That's the appropriate response. And now what do you have? Despite being very close to China, the number of infection cases in Taiwan is 32 as of February 26th. Compare that to South Korea, 1,200, Japan, 885, and obviously, whatever the number is, certainly north of 80,000 in China. I mentioned uh, when we spoke with Scott Walker, Israeli scientists are on the job, too. They're on the cusp of developing the first vaccine against the coronavirus, according to Israel's science and technology minister, if all goes as planned, the vaccine could be ready within a few weeks and available in 90 days, which would be great. I mean, that's um, it may speak to something about the regulatory bottlenecks in in our country. After you heard from Tony Fauci uh, at uh, National Institute for Health uh, on Trump's uh, address to the nation on the topic, where he basically said, you know, we're looking at in terms of a vaccine, we're looking at a year to a year and a half because of the trials you have to go through and so forth. Uh, He suggested, you know, antiviral therapies different may be available in uh, about the same time period that Israel is talking about. They may have a vaccine. So we'll see. We'll see. But but even for the people who are hysterical, um, you know, I mean, take some of the like, like the worst actors and the worst institutions And even take note of what some within those outlets, I'm talking about the media, of course, are saying. Richard Engel, NBC News. From, you know, a virologist he actually spoke with rather than these guys playing armchair infectious disease expert. Richard Engel tweeting, don't panic. Doctors, virologists I'm speaking to say 98 percent of people will be fine even if they get COVID-19. They expect it will go around the world, but that most people will get it. Uh, but that most people who do get it will be a little sick, then recover. The danger of course is vulnerable people, hospitals, old age homes. Yes. And you don't want to be flippant about anybody's life or about any cohort of the population. You want to be measured. That's all. You don't have to be throwing little girls off a flight. Family of five is from the the sun across the pond. Family of five kicked off a plane just before takeoff over fears their coughing toddler could be infected with coronavirus. Uh, Canadian family. At uh, uh, fellow passengers asked the Air Trans at cabin crew to question the family over the twenty-one months old the twenty-one month olds coughing, uh, and so she assured the crew that the mom assured the crew the child was safe and told them they had been given the, the all clear by a doctor earlier that day said the girl had nothing but uh, had a cold but nothing more. However, since they couldn't provide a written document about their daughter's health, they, uh, uh, they, they a flight attendant asked the doctor on board to examine the girl who also confirmed she was fine to fly. But the captain wasn't happy with the doctor's diagnosis, contacted MedLink, a company specializing in aviation medical issues, and reported advice to eject the girl from the plane because she did not have a medical certificate to state she was not infected with the virus. I mean, really? From people beating poodles to death with bats in China to kicking little girls off the planes because you're so hysterical. I mean, get a frackin' grip. My advice, taken from an actual expert, I'll repeat the same thing I said last night. Real simple. It's an aphorism I'm sure you can remember. Infectious disease expert from Brown University. Calm down and carry on. This is Dan Proft.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. The frequency with which representations made by FBI personnel turned out to be unsupported or contradicted by information in their possession and with which they withheld information detrimental to their case calls into question whether information contained in other FBI applications is reliable. That was FISA Court Judge Rosemary Collier writing her rebuke of the FBI's performance in vetting, and presenting accurate information to the FISA courts for the surveillance warrants they obtained as part of the Trump-Russia collusion investigation. Of course, uh, Christopher Wray, the current FBI director, acknowledged the failures of the FBI, rolled out uh, a series of reforms, training reforms, in January of this year, and uh, that seems to be satisfactory to uh, Attorney General Barr, that uh, the FBI is getting its act together and what happened with the phony baloney information to obtain surveillance warrants on Carter Page for the Russian collusion investigation won't happen again. Well, Angelo Cotavia begs to differ. Angelo Cotavia is a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, professor emeritus of international relations relations at Boston University, the man credited with... uh, the term ruling class talking about it uh almost a decade before trump's election half a decade at least i'm pleased to be joined by Angela cotavia thanks so much for joining us professor appreciate it you're welcome uh in your a uh, piece uh co-authored by colleagues in uh, americanmind.org uh you call for fisa as well as the cia to be abolished that it is not salvageable why don't we start with fisa and why you believe the reforms proposed by Christopher Ray are insufficient.
7: Well, uh, I have unfortunately a, a too intimate a knowledge of, of FISA because I was one of the people who wrote it. Um, I was one, one of the opponent, one of the few, very few opponents on the Senate Intelligence Committee back in 1978 uh, when the thing was proposed. I remember sitting around on the table, with the drafters, and uh, as they were putting in all of the the, the fancy safeguards for uh, civil liberties in there, and uh, I reminded them that uh, those words could be reinterpreted and would would be reinterpreted, because the main feature of FISA is the establishment of a uh, of a secret court uh, to, that would that grants uh, permission. For uh, national security wiretaps. Now, uh, the existence of, of, of a um, uh, of an ex parte secret proceeding is anathema to uh, to the American legal system. And what it does, above all other things, is to to uh, give pre to the agencies to to do their um, uh, to, to do the uh, wiretapping. Uh, that. Uh, uh, effectively, uh, it makes it impossible, very nearly impossible, to challenge the legitimacy of what they are, of what they have done. Uh,
1: and and, and so, uh, clearance
7: is is a um, uh, the, the mixture of, um, uh, of the judicial and uh, executive power is lethal. This is something that that the founders uh, very much wanted to separate. And that Pfizer brings together. I said to them that um, this would make a, uh, an unendurable for an, uh, un, an unendurable temptation uh, by the agencies to overstep their bounds. I made the same argument uh, in a um, uh, uh, debate uh, arranged by the uh, American Bar Association with then Professor Antonin Scalia, <laughs> who thought that. Um, Yes, well, this would be a small breach in the Constitution, but it could be. Uh, it, um, uh, it it wouldn't be so big. Uh, the agencies wouldn't go that far. I said, yeah, uh, just wait around. Well, well right. Uh, yeah. we've, seen, we've seen the results.
1: Yeah, and um, when we come back, I, I want to get your, your take on this, because it seems to me the question that uh, the FBI, Department of Justice, uh, FISA court judges have to answer is why – can federal law enforcement or um, or CIA why can they go to uh, a regular Article Three court? For surveillance warrants on a whole range of people's, but uh, and and maintain and maintain the secrecy there. But for some reason, they have to have this secret. Oh no
7: no 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 no! That, that, that is a very clear answer to it. To that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, just just
1: just hold hold right there. Hold right there, and we'll pick it up right after the break. We're talking to Angela Cota a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, professor emeritus of international relations at Boston U. We'll be right back with more Angela Cota.
0: fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Prof. Show.
1: We're back with Angelo Cotavia, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute and professor emeritus of international relations at Boston University. And we're talking about his piece in the American mind calling for the abolition of the CIA and FISA and, Professor, you were about to explain why uh, why what uh, is done in the FISA court can't be done in a uh, regular Article Three court.
7: No, no, it can't. Uh, it is. Look, uh, national security war attacks are part of essentially the war-making powers of the executive. Uh, it makes no sense whatsoever to go to a, uh, uh, an, an open court, and ask uh, for um, for a warrant to to um, um, to wiretap a terrorist. I mean, I'm sure the terrorists would find out very very fast. So it, uh, the the wiretaps have to be done secretly. What FISA does is to grant a, a judicial approval before the thing happens. Before FISA, the uh, agencies had simply wiretapped as they thought as they thought best, but those wiretaps were always open to ex post facto questioning. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the problem that FISA does is to give excessive confidence uh, to, the, to the agencies. And all of the, uh, the, the fancy words that are supposed to protect uh, innocent Americans uh, really uh, are subject to, to being negated by interpretation. And that is exactly what has happened and that cannot be fixed and, simply and, by writing a, new sets of guidelines, new sets of restrictions, and, and because so, the, ag- yeah. the agencies will simply reinterpret them again.
1: And so, when you say that uh, it gives too much confidence, this uh, uh, preemptive uh, process—yeah, uh, too much confidence—because you're basically taking uh, the moving party's word for it.
7: Well, that's right. Uh, you, you, but you see, what you—it's more than that. The uh, uh, you are saying that, in fact, there was a good reason for doing it. Now, um, it's essentially saying that the agencies are infallible, Mm -hmm. that a judge certifies that what the agencies are doing is good. The the judges have no way of knowing whether whether, what uh, the agencies are doing is good or bad. Uh, I mean, that is why we have separation of powers, you see, Uh, so that one branch of the government may check another. It, It is impossible for the judiciary, then to check uh, what, uh, what, a, what uh, has been done with the judiciary's approval. That's what? why FISA yes. is, was a bad idea to begin with. The, the agencies had functioned very well before FISA. Now they wanted a cushy um, um, uh, backstop on which, uh, on the basis of which to do the work, which beforehand they had done really rather well. Uh, so th- this was, a, as I say, a bad idea, and the time has come to simply get rid of it and go, get back to what was being done beforehand.
1: You uh, offer another example of one of your criticisms of FISA and why it's got to go. It's incentivized political abuse, uh, profiling. That, well, yes, of course. The profiling well, that was look, done in the Atlanta, uh, uh, Atlanta Olympics bombing and the anthrax cases.
7: Well, look, um, th- these, are, these are two slightly separate things. Uh what do people, uh, human beings, focus on? Not necessarily their jobs. They, they, I mean, this has been uh, a, um, a controversy has been going on, not a controversy, a discussion that's been going on since the time of Plato. Uh, people tend to focus on what is most important to them, and unfortunately, uh, uh, bureaucrats tend to uh, focus not so much on what they ought to do, but on the people they consider to be their domestic competitors, domestic enemies. The terrorists can't hurt the FBI nearly as much as, uh, as the Republicans, <laughs> <laughs> which is why they go after the Republicans.
1: Uh, I want it. Well, OK. Yeah. All right. OK. I see that. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, this is
7: unfortunately, this is bureaucratic logic.
1: Uh, I wanted to uh, get your take too uh, on the CIA because you also call for the CIA to be abolished, suggesting that it's obsolete. Why is it obsolete? Uh,
7: well, uh, these are two different, two slightly different things. CIA is um, is the only well, when it was formed, it was the only agency, intelligence agency in the world that was untied, unconnected to actual operations of government. It, it um, I, it, again it does things in which it is interested it uh, gathers information in which it is interested not necess- uh, not information in which uh, the military is interested or the state department is interested what i'm not calling for is not the abolition not so much the abolition of it although it would result in the abolition yeah but in the transfer of the, the of the uh, the functions of cia to the operating departments of government the uh, state
1: the, defense the, treasury
7: above all the military, the, the, uh, uh, the, the diplomatic service uh, and, and the treasury. Uh, look, I'll give you one example. Uh, we have in the Justice Department something called the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency, mm-hmm. which runs all kinds of uh, spy operations. Uh, and the reason that it does them, those, those operations, is that the CIA cannot do that. The CIA's people are just not the kind of people who can go undercover. And and, uh, and do um, uh, drug interdiction, you know. Uh, and so they they have their own kind. Uh, the military can take care of it, uh, is far better set up to take care of its own intelligence needs than is CIA. So what we're talking what, what I'm talking about is transferring the uh, the functions of CIA to the people who can uh, use them best.
1: I understand that, and you have a you have a, a general criticism too that I want you to uh, elaborate upon, which is that intelligence must return to its natural place as servant, not master of government. How how the intel community has become the master, not the servant.
7: Well, that's right. Uh, when uh, an agency is cut loose from doing jobs, specific jobs called for by, the, the, uh, by those it serves, i.e. the military. When, when uh, intelligence does not do what it's supposed to do, idle hands do the work of the devil. <laughs> as, as the old proverb says, idle hands will serve their own purposes. And what the CIA has done from its very beginning, they have concentrated far more on uh, affecting domestic politics uh, and uh, domestic policy than on anything else.
1: Well, uh, we can learn more about uh, the arguments behind the proposal to abolish FISA and essentially disestablish the CIA. Angela Cotovia's piece at AmericanMind.org, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Angela Cotovia, senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, professor emeritus of international relations at Boston University. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. I Pre- appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. The more
0: you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'd like to end the show and a very tough week, so many respects, with a little inspiration and a little entertainment. The inspiration. I talked about uh, Chicago, Chicago Public Schools canceling Columbus Day this year. I just want to tell you a story about, uh, you know, one guy who is making a difference in one of the worst public school districts in the country. That's Chicago. One of the most disgraceful. An $8 billion criminal enterprise, as far as I'm concerned, that for generations has maleducated children and uh, rob them of their opportunity to be successful in life. Truly. Uh, This guy's name is Joseph O'Call. He's a math teacher at uh, Earl Stem Elementary School in the Inglewood neighbor in Chicago. It is one of the most violent neighborhoods in Chicago and the country. Let me give you a, a little context where I live in Chicago neighborhood called Streeterville, also known by Jesse Smollett as MAGA country the average life expectancy is 90 years in Inglewood where Joseph O'Call teaches seven miles away from me. The average life expectancy is 60 years. That is the greatest disparity of any two neighborhoods in the same city in the country. That's how bad it is. And yet Joseph O'Call started a chess program at Earl stomach elementary school a few years ago, despite, are you ready? Opposition, <laughs> opposition from teachers and administrators. Oh, I- Opposed to a chess program at an elementary school because, you know, critical thinking skills, developing those, that is verboten in CPS. Anyway, he persisted. And uh, despite the fact that in this $8 billion enterprise and with all of these uh, public sector pension millionaires teaching, they can't come up with any money for the chess program. So uh, we at the Chicago station, uh, where I also broadcast, got together and raised money over the holidays so that... Joseph O'Call's chess team could participate in the state tournament, which is happening right now, and the national chess tournament in April. And uh, I'm happy to report we raised enough money and they're down there. And his kids have been performing wonderfully. It's turning these kids' lives around, developing skills they didn't know they possessed. And they're actually doing quite well in these chess competitions. So even in the worst Command control systems in the country, and Chicago Public Schools is right near the top. There is hope, and there are people doing great things to help as many people, as many kids, really get on lifeboats as possible. Uh, and just you know, so just a, a, wanted to share a little bit of a, a hopeful story. I don't have a lot coming out of Chicago, and um, and this is one of them. It's a great story. Uh, and now I'll end with um, a gentleman who is quickly becoming the poet laureate for my shows, both in Chicago and this one. He's uh, an accomplished attorney and uh, amateur poet who goes by the gnome de plume R.A. Droit, and he offers this for your enjoyment on the eve of the South Carolina primary. The Dems careened through yet one more debate, the time down south in the Palmetto State. The amateurish host from CBS could not control that night's forensic mess. Decorum on the stage did not obtain... The din recalled a fast-approaching train, the moderators won collective dunce, while aging Marxists shouted all at once. Their arms all raised to show their willingness resembled yoga at the villages. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you on Monday.
0: Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show.
1: You are fake news.